Welcome to The Free Will Show, a podcast that provides a beginner-friendly introduction to free will while also exploring cutting-edge developments on the topic. I'm Taylor Sear. And I'm Matt Flummer. In this episode, we talk with David Shoemaker about his theory of different kinds of moral responsibility and its implications for psychopathy and the law. Thanks for listening. I'm happy to introduce David Shoemaker, professor of philosophy at Cornell University. Dave's research interests include agency and responsibility, personal identity and ethics, moral psychology, normative ethics, and social political philosophy, and even humor. He has a book coming out next year on humor and morality. Um, We could mention several of Dave's many publications that will all be of interest to our listeners, but one that we're going to bring up in the interview is his 2015 book published by Oxford University Press, called Responsibility from the Margins, where he presents a theory of moral responsibility and discusses its implications for cases of marginal agency, including psychopathy, which will be our focus in this episode. So welcome to the show, Dave. Could you start by telling us a bit about yourself, your work, and how you came to be interested in working on issues related to free will and moral responsibility? Well, first, thanks to you both for having me. This is uh, this is a treat. I really appreciate it. Of course. Thank um, you. Yeah. I wanted to. I wanted to be an actor. That's all I really wanted to. And my dad said, "I'm not paying for your college if you if you study theater." So <laughs> I decided instead to do pre-law, and as part of the pre-law program, I was taking a lot of history classes, but also took my first philosophy class the first fall semester of my undergrad, and it just completely blew me away. I'd been reading some philosophy in high school. Bertrand Russell's Problems of Philosophy, I think, is just terrific, a great introduction, and it's accessible to people in high school and Mm -hmm. even younger, perhaps. And I was reading some Nietzsche, which is perfect for the rebellious stage I was in (laughs) at that point in my life. Um, But the the, the philosophy professor, it was was a course in moral philosophy, and the the philosophy professor was just fantastic. He's not in the business anymore. He wasn't in the business for very long. He decided he went and became an arborist and grew this incredibly lucrative Mm -hmm. tree business. But he was just incredible. Dr. Brian Sayers, Sayers was his name. And it was the first real challenge I'd had, and uh, I couldn't get enough of it. And so Mm -hmm. I kept... Uh, taking as many philosophy courses as I could, I wound up majoring in it. I still had thought to go to law school, but in between undergrad and grad school, I actually worked in a law firm as a word processor. It was a corporate law firm, and I saw how utterly miserable the people there were. I mean, they had showers built in, and they were expected to use them because they were supposed to be working there 19, 20 hours a day. and And they were just moving commas around. So I decided I was going to re- think about going to philosophy in grad school and uh, took a look, and that's what I did. And I wound up at UC Irvine studying initially under the late, great Greg Kafka, doing some doing a, a dissertation on personal identity. But uh, Greg died when I was uh, – after I'd written basically the first chapter, and Gary Watson was the other person on my committee who, who took over for – Greg. I didn't write a dissertation on responsibility. I wasn't interested in writing a dissertation on responsibility or free will because at the time I thought Gary had gotten everything right. <laughs> and this is the kind of attitude you will occasionally have towards a great uh, advisor. And so I just didn't bother for another, I think, seven or eight years until I thought, you know, there might be an angle here. I'm not sure Gary got this completely right. And mm-hmm. so then I started working on the issues. I also 
was really interested in the issue of responsibility because of ways in which various capacities had been laid out as crucial to agency and responsibility. But no one ever talked about a lot of the people that I knew or who were in my family who had various kinds of disorders and disabilities. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to start writing about real people and, and yeah. responsibility capacities for real people. And that's where responsibility from the margins ultimately came from. Nice. Yeah, very cool. Thanks for that background. Before we ask you to talk more about marginal agents and psychopathy in particular, I want to invite you to say a little bit more about your tripartite theory of responsibility. Could you tell us the three parts and explain the differences? I'll do my best. Um, (laughs) It's driven by Strawson, who I hadn't, I I must have read in grad school, but I don't really remember it. And I'm sure I didn't understand it. But um, the P.F. Strawson article that, you know, people who work in this business know freedom and resentment. It's just incredibly influential and it was deeply influential on me. And in particular, I was fascinated by the claim that, you know, all we have to do is look at the facts as we know them, facts to which we all have access. And then we can, as he says, recover from these facts. All it is when we say, or everything that we mean when we say things like responsibility and dessert. And in particular, looking at our practices of, of uh, uh, in which we respond with various kinds of attitudes, what he called reactive attitudes. And so the project of the book was meant to see if I can vindicate that thought, that I can look at the entire range of our responsibility responses, and then see if we can construct out of those, merely from the facts as we know them, uh, capacities that people can have that uh, can render them responsible in a way that didn't require fancy metaphysics. So nothing agent causal or you know ultimate sourcehood, these kinds of things. Um, so technically the book is not a project. It's not a compatibilist view. It just lays the groundwork for what should be an easy step to a compatibilist view. And so the aim was to focus really carefully on the responses that we have to one another, what we think of as our responsibility responses. And I found that there are three general categories. So there's a kind of anger with which we're most familiar as attached to responsibility appraisals, kind of agential anger, um, paired with a positive kind of response, which is gratitude. Uh, And there's a different kind of set of attitudes that I think paradigmatically are first personal. So regret Mm -hmm. and pride. And then there's a third set of attitudes that are targeted more towards character. And these are contempt or disdain and admiration. Mm -hmm. And there's three very different sets of attitudes. I think they all implicate responsibility. They aren't, many of them aren't listed by Strawson and, and they hadn't been discussed really before in the literature. Anger targets a certain set of capacities that's different from the kinds of capacities that are targeted by regret. And those are, two, those are also different from the kinds of capacities that are targeted by emotions like contempt or disdain. Here I'm just focusing on the negative mm-hmm. versions. Because they're targeting different capacities, then the inference for me was these are just different types of responsibility. So that anger targets a certain, well, I'll start with the easier case, actually. Contempt (laughs) targets a kind of character Mm -hmm. and uh, certain attitudes that are attributable to someone's character. Mm 
And so uh, that requires a certain kind of self, a certain kind of character. And it's not the kind of thing over which we have a certain control, uh, but nevertheless, it's manifested in all sorts of ways that are responsibility ways, and we respond mm-hmm. to them in ways that are indicative of that. We organize our life around avoiding people who are contemptible, for example, right. and we try to be like people who are admirable. So that's one kind of responsibility. It's attributability. The second kind is organized around that first personal paradigm pair of regret and pride. When I regret something... Oh, you idiot. Why'd you do that? It can be purely prudential. But what I'm doing is agonizing over a poor decision or choice that I made, which itself has its source in a poor judgment. There were various reasons that were available to me, and I judged that these reasons were more worth acting on than these other reasons, and it turns out I was just wrong. And it motivates a kind of policy change for the future. So, these are the kinds of decisions and choices for which I am answerable. And that implicates a different kind of capacity, the capacity to evaluate the worth of various reasons, to be able to identify what kind of facts are reason-ish, as I say, and what kinds of facts are just mere facts. They don't have anything to do with my practical or moral reasons. So I make good or bad judgments relative to these reasons. And this is answerability because when people ask me the kind of classic question, why did you do that? Then I'm, in principle anyway, able to answer relative yeah. to the kinds of reasons that I found salient. Right. That's the second kind. Again, it requires a different set of capacities than I think that attributability does. And then the third kind is accountability. This is the kind of responsibility that lots of people say, that's this is the one I really care about. This is the one I'm really working on. Um, and it's the one that they think is connected up to the traditional puzzle of free will. I think accountability is accountability to other people. And the kind of anger that we feel when people wrong us or slight us is, I think, traceable fundamentally to a failure of regard on their part. And what is regard? It's a kind of empathy. It's a kind of ability to take up my perspective, see what things are like from my perspective. And there are two kinds there. There's a kind of evaluative Empathy, where I can take up your perspective and I can see what things matter to you, the things that you judge to be worth pursuing. And then there's a kind of emotional empathy where I can take up your perspective again, and I'm vulnerable to be responding in the similar sorts of emotional ways that you do to setbacks of value. And so, uh, and I really apologize. That feels like I'm really talking a lot here. <laughs> so please feel free <laughs> to interrupt. No, me. Wait. But um, so that again requires a kind of empathy. Mm-hmm. And um, impairments in each of these kinds of capacities are going to yield impairments in the kind of responsibility that's associated with it. But the aim here was to come up with a much more realistic uh, explanation and justification for the kind of ambivalence that we have to real life agents. So as I'd said earlier, people's writing about people with disorders and so forth had either been on off, either they're responsible or they're not, no in between. What this view I think vindicates is a kind of ambivalence that we have about what I've called marginal agents, so-called marginal agents, where it's not on off at all. Instead, it's, eh, they feel responsible in some ways, but not others. And this was an attempt to vindicate that by saying, yeah, 
lots of real life marginal agents are, say, accountable but not answerable, or accountable and not attributable. One and, and, and or vice versa, they're attributable but they're not answerable or accountable. And then one crucial final element here is that these are distinct kinds of responsibility. It's not like one type of responsibility is a kind of necessary condition for the others that you build on one. No, these are all independent. And so part of the aim of the second part of the book was to show how there are kind of paradigmatic instances in which someone is attributability, responsible, but not answerable or accountable, and you know, go through the various uh, different types of responsibility. And again, and so the theory was attempting to predict how we would respond to real life agents that explains the ambivalence that I think that we, that we feel, but the ambivalence is going to be different kinds of ambivalence for different kinds of, ref- yeah. of marginal agents. Yeah, that makes sense. That's very helpful. And I, I was going to ask you now about the second half of uh, marginal agents or responsibility from the margins, sorry, um, where you discuss the predictions of your theory for um, different cases um, of what you call uh, marginal agents, including psychopaths. Maybe before we get to uh, psychopathy in particular, could you describe some of the other cases of marginal agency that you consider in that second part of the book? Yeah. um, So it's clinical depression uh, scrupulosity, which is this fascinating disorder, it's a form of obsessive compulsive disorder that's targeted to typically moral or religious values. And so those with scrupulosity will just, they think they've done something wrong, immoral, and they just obsess about it. They return to it again and again, or they think they hit somebody as they're driving home. They'll just keep driving around the block to that same spot again and again and again. Or in religious versions, they'll just constantly, they're doing penance or going to church and confessing their sins and so forth. It's that really fascinating disorder. What's really interesting about it, though, is that they think they're morally good people, and they think that this is the way in which morally good people ought to behave. So that's a that's a, a case. Uh, as you say, uh, I talk about uh, psychopathy, but also um, dementia of various sorts, um, and also uh, people with um, high functioning autism and um, mild intellectual disabilities. Uh, I also talk about people with poor formative circumstances, but they don't really qualify. I don't think is the kind of the, the disorders and. Various kinds of mental disabilities were the ones that I really wanted to focus most on. Mm-hmm. And so the theory is going to predict, I think, as I said, that we're going to have a kind of ambivalence about these agents as responsible agents. I should also stress this is a theory about responsible agency, what it means to be a responsible agent, as opposed to whether or not in any particular concrete case someone is responsible for doing something you know, in the moment. Right. It's just what the conditions and capacities you have to have in order to be a responsible agent, to be a member of these various kinds of communities. And so, um, so for something like clinical depression, I was really fascinated. There, there are a variety, and I should also stress there are a variety of kinds of disorders within each of these uh, named disorders and many, many different kinds of clinical depression. Um, I was interested in one particular kind in which an agent, say, um, is clinically depressed, um, who just can't get out of bed, but has made a promise to meet someone and just can't on, the, on, on those kinds of occasions just 
move herself to do so. Mm-hmm. And what differentiates this case from a case of somebody who's just lazy or doesn't feel like mm-hmm. maybe I made, maybe they made a promise I'll meet you for lunch and just can't be roused to get out of bed. What's the difference between a case of depression and laziness? And what's fascinating about the case of de- depression is that uh, people with depression tend to be incredibly empathic. And in fact, tragically, this is the source of some depression itself, that they can feel the pain of many people. And the thought that they can't do anything about it is just spirals them down into even greater depression. So they're acutely empathic. They have then, on my view, the capacity for regard. Mm-hmm. They have great regard for other people. And so they are accountable, at least in terms of being able to regard people in the right sort of way. Um, and they may even be able to make good judgments about worth. Um, but what they um, are impaired for is um, certain kinds of character commitments, certain kinds of attribution. So their laying in bed isn't properly attributable to their character. It's not a manifestation of who they are. It's instead definitely a manifestation of the disorder. Mm-hmm. And so contempt, disdain, these kinds of things, they're inappropriate for people with clinical depression, whereas something like gratitude could still be appropriate in virtue of the fact that they are accountable. Right. So there, and, and, and so what I do is try to treat the other kinds of uh, marginal agents uh, in a similar sort of way. Um, So um, people with mild intellectual disabilities, for example, are, I think, thoroughly accountable. Um, They have empathy galore, and it's expressed, and they have – there's no uh, difficulty in in manifesting their uh, character traits, right? You tell good, bad – um, the kinds of attitudes that they have towards others reflect who they are, but where they have difficulty is making certain kinds of abstract judgments about worth, and so might be impaired for something like answerability. The why did you do it question is tougher to answer, I think, for people with mild intellectual disabilities than it may be for others. Right. Yeah. So these are the kinds of uh, uh, thing verdicts that the theory predicts. What I like about it is that it's hostage to the empirical facts. Mm-hmm. So these are these were predictions made eight years ago, uh, the latest available science. Uh, but for example, the facts about autism change really quickly, or what becomes a leading theory, for example, of high-functioning autism can change dramatically, in which case things that I wrote, eh, that's what based on the available science could be dead wrong now, and that's yeah. fine with me. I'm happy with that. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, let's focus in on psychopaths now. What exactly does it mean to be a psychopath in the relevant sense of this term? This is a fraught term. Yeah. Psychopathy. Yeah. Just clear up one thing. It used to be there might there was a slight difference between sociopath and psychopath. There's not really anymore and the okay. the favored term is psychopath, but Psychopath isn't a favored term for the people, for psychiatrists, those people who are mostly in charge of the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, which is the sort of Bible of mental disorder. Psychopathy is yet to make its way in as a recognizable disorder. Um, 
just a brief background on this, and then I'll, I'll lay out the, the, the relevant factors here. But yeah. um, it was originally diagnosed in part by the work of Robert Hare, who's a criminologist in part, but he was interested in um, recidivism and the kinds of disorders that would predict recidivism amongst criminals. And um, psychopathy was a leading um, predictor where he included a number of different traits, um, but most of them that predict recidivism are what are now known as factor two traits of psychopathy, which is really just antisocial personality disorder. It's behavioral. It's the kinds of nasty things that people do to one another, and it manifests a certain kind of impairment of empathy, really a kind of callousness. So um, it has remained in the DSM under antisocial personality disorder, but it's the behavioral stuff isn't so much what philosophers and others and other psychologists are interested in exploring because there's a personality type here um, that's not necessarily going to predict prison time or recidivism rates, but instead is the source of all sorts of headaches, <laughs> that, mm. of nastiness in general. And these are listed under what's known as factor one traits of psychopathy. And so this is a kind of callousness. These are psychological traits. So a kind of callousness. Uh, again, emotional, or sorry, empathic impairment, but also emotional impairment. Uh, reduced fear. Grandiose. Feelings of grandiosity. This, mm -hmm. It overlaps quite a bit with narcissism. Um, uh, let's see, what else? Oh, uh, manipulativeness and a certain kind of charmingness. So psychopaths who are heavy on the, psych, on the uh, factor one traits um, tend to be what we call successful <laughs> psychopaths, which, which means that they're just not in prison. Yeah. <laughs> and so they they manage to make their way through life without violating the law or at least violating the laws in ways that they wind up getting caught. Mm -hmm. And those are the really interesting characters, I think, for a variety of reasons. Because um, they can suck people in and they are very surface, but nevertheless, on the surface can be incredibly charming. And... Um, but in so doing, what they're doing is also manipulating people, figuring out what buttons to press and how to press them to get the things that they want. So they engage in all sorts of activities just, just because. Um, they like to see how it affects people when you just lie to them or where you insult them in a really deep and mean cut to the core kind of way. And they find these sorts of things funny. So I've been writing about humor a bit, and um, psychopaths are part of uh, what's known as the dark triad, which includes Machiavellians, who just like to pull people's puppet strings, right. and uh, just for fun, and uh, narcissists, who you know, yeah. you know, we all know what narcissists are. Uh, but they, what they share is really a kind of callousness and empathic impairment, and so I take that to be the core of psychopathy. Mm -hmm. Other people's distress doesn't 
move them, or at least it doesn't cause them distress. What it tends to cause is amusement. And this is what's most terrifying, I think, right. about the psychopaths yeah. among us. It's a, it's a, it's a very wide spectrum. Um, to be diagnosed as a psychopath, you have to score really high. Um, teenage boys have something in common with, <laughs> with psychopaths. They can appear on this spectrum a bit, but it's still yeah. way at the low end. Most people score really, really low, and the people who are diagnosed as psychopaths score really high. And it's, there's a dramatic difference, I think, between Interesting. them and us. That's how I put yeah. it. <laughs> Interesting. Well, you alluded to this earlier, but um, as you highlight in your book, ma- many of us have an ambivalent uh, re- kind of responsibility response uh, to psychopaths. Um, what does your tripartite theory predict uh, concerning the responsibility status of psychopaths? Yeah, so there's a sense in which they're not responsible and a sense in which they are. Mm-hmm. Now, this is it's hard to get to because i think the initial response that people have to psychopaths who harm them is just straight up anger and they think yeah give me a break they are responsible and if any theory suggests that they aren't they think well that's got to be the wrong answer because Mm -hmm. they hurt me um so there are some theorists who say nope they're just not responsible period. That seems the wrong answer. There are others that say, nope, they're full-on responsible. That, to me, seems the wrong answer, too, once you explore the nature of the impairments that they have, and they have genuine impairments. Emotional, callousness, empathy, uh, impairment, serious empathy impairments in some cases. So my view predicts that they are not accountable to us, um, which means something like anger, is um, not fitting for them. It's not the, it's, 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 and in fact, if you get, see, I've, I've, I've had the misfortune of knowing some psychopaths and um, when you do get angry at them, it just kind of feeds the fire a bit and they find it to be, again, funny. And they sort of like pushing your buttons in a way that has you erupting in that way. Well, I think what that indicates is, I mean, normally if I get angry with you and you're typical, your normal responsible agent, you're going to take that seriously and you're going to take a step back or try to figure out what it is that you did. But there's a kind of demand that my anger is making of you. It may be inappropriate or maybe appropriate, but you want to find out whether or not it's appropriate. If it is, there are certain things that need to be, need doing. I mean, it's yeah. the normal anger exchange i think that we have psychopaths don't take that invitation they don't see it as a demand or an invitation they see it as a kind of funny output of these emotional these pitiable emotional creatures so insofar as they're the anger that we express is just not successful as a communication with them that's indicative of something that in and of itself doesn't indicate that they're not responsible, but we should look take seriously the fact that they they can't engage in this kind of anger communicative exchange. And I think the source of it is simply their empathic impairments, which is also the source of their responsibility impairments. I mean, what I'm demanding of you when I get angry is that you take up my perspective and you see what it was like when you made me feel this nasty thing that you made me feel. Mm-hmm. And if you can come to acknowledge that with a kind of painful guilt or remorse, that's been the successful exchange between us. But I'm demanding a kind of 
empathic acknowledgement. If psychopaths are impaired for empathy, then they can't take up my perspective. They can't do what anger demands. And so I think that that suggest, strongly suggests that they're not accountable agents. Are they answerable? That is to say, are they able to make judgments of worth? This is up for some debate. I go back and forth about this myself. The uh, empirical literature is somewhat equivocal. There are examples of psychopaths from the famous book by Herbie Cleckley called Masks of Sanity that was uh, talked about psychopathy in detail early on in the 40s. And um, there were people there, he would say, you know, if you keep doing that to one of the person who had been, who was a psychopath, if you keep doing that, you're going to go back to jail. Oh, I don't want to go to prison. I hate prison. Are you going to do it again? Oh, yeah, I'll do it. So they were not able to translate what you know they claimed was an end of theirs into any kind of practical reason. Yeah. I think, and there's a longer story here, I think it's because they can't make judgments of worth. They can't judge as to, to the worth of various kinds of reasons. I think they have desires. I think they have pursuits that are driven by those desires, but they are susceptible to being cut off at any point if they have a stronger desire to do something else. So for the rest of us, if I judge that this this thing is worth pursuing, that gives me a reason to keep going even if I don't desire it. You know, on the rainy day, I nevertheless have to get up and do the work that I you know, said I had to do outside because it's worth doing. I have to do it. Psychopaths, I don't think, operate that way. And so I don't think that they're capable of making – or they have impairments when it comes to their capacity for making judgments of worth, which I think reduces their answerability. It's a somewhat different answer than I gave in the book. But again, it's, 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 a, it's subject – it's hostage to the fortunes of the empirical work. But I have not budged on the last view, which is that they're definitely attributability responsible, mm-hmm. that they are cruel. That's a, that's a thick, eretic predicate that goes to the behavior of psychopaths. They can be cruel. They are manipulative. These are the kinds of things that warrant a certain kind of disdain or contempt. And so that range of responsibility responses is perfectly appropriate for psychopaths. Organize your life in a way that you get away from contemptible people. That's going to include psychopaths. And it's a kind of responsibility response. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I have a follow-up question about the, the, the case of the person who was told, if you keep doing this, you're going to go back to jail. And they say, well, yeah, I don't want to go back to jail. Or are you going to do it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, how much of that do you think is a result of like they they can't put themselves in someone else's shoes, but maybe it's also that they can't put themselves in their own shoes in the future. Is that yes. is that like an that's, explanation? That's dead on. I think it's exactly okay. right. I think of the work that empathy does when it comes to other people is at the source. It's the it's the core of moral of morality of of interpersonal what we owe to each other kind of morality. Mm-hmm. It's what enables us to identify certain kinds of moral reasons, reasons for how we ought to treat each other. But I think empathy is also at the core of prudence. Mm-hmm. So it's my empathy with my future self yeah. that gives me reasons now to be to do the sorts of things that will better the life of my future self. And so I think that the empathy impairment is at the core of both their impairments of accountability and their impairments of answerability. Answerability cuts wide. It doesn't just focus on the moral. It cuts across 
all normative domains. I can you can ask me when I make a pie, why'd you make it like that? Right. And that's an answerability question. So the same thing is what well, you spent all of your inheritance money or you spent all of the your retirement money. Why'd you do that? Oh, well, you know, if I don't have a good answer to that, then I've done something that's either a reflection of poor judgment or it's something that somebody with impaired judgment would do. So yeah, I have a paper called Empathic Control and then Empathic Self-Control is a different paper that are both trying to zero in on exactly the idea that you articulated, that the same thing that cuts across, cuts interpersonally goes for intrapersonal deliberation as well. Yeah. Fascinating. It is, yeah. Well, we want to make sure to uh, explicitly ask about psychopathy and the law. So what kind of issues, what kind of legal issues having to do with psychopaths um, could could we move towards and discuss now? So uh, let me give a, a little background here that I think then gives rise to the view that I favor. Um, so James Blair, who is a psychologist uh, in the mid nineties, did a series of groundbreaking studies on psychopaths. Now they were incarcerated, incarcerated and there weren't a lot of them, but what he did was apply a famous a moral developmental task that had been done just for children to psychopaths. That Now, that developmental task is the moral conventional task, and it assumes that there's a, uh, an identifiable distinction between moral norms and conventional norms. And this was developed by psychologists, child, child psychologists in particular, so it doesn't have all of the, the nice uh, philosophical background to it that we might like, but nevertheless, um, the idea was that Moral norms um, are authority independent, that they obtain whether or not some authority says it's okay, whereas conventional norms, they are a function of authority. And so the cases that were given were teachers, these were given to kids, you know, so they say, um, is it okay for a kid to turn their back on the teacher? And so... The kids would say, no, that's that's probably not okay. And then they would ask, well, what if the teacher said it was okay for them to turn their back on her? And the kids would say, oh, well, then it's okay. And what they're doing is identifying, well, it's just a conventional norm. Um, but what if one boy hits another? Is that okay? No, that's not okay. What if the teacher said it's okay for one boy to hit another? The kids would say, no, it's still not okay. Yeah. All right. So those are the kind of classic cases. They gave this task to psychopaths. Again, they were incarcerated, and there were only 10 of them. (laughs) But he got really, really cool results that yielded all these follow-up studies. And the results were that uh, it seemed like psychopaths couldn't differentiate between moral and conventional norm violations. Now, what's lost in this discussion is that they couldn't track the difference, but in a weird way. It's an unexpected way. So you'd think that psychopaths would say, that's all good. None of it counts as a violation. You can do whatever you want. That's not what they did. They did the opposite. They said, you can't ever violate anything. So even if the teacher says, okay, you can turn your back on her, the psychopath would say, no, you can't. (laughs) So they weren't differentiating between the moral conventional norm violations, but they weren't doing so in a weird way. Right. so what are we to make of this? Well, then some more work that had been done. It turns out they can sort of differentiate between moral norm violations and conventional violations. But through a variety of evidence, what I was gleaning from it was that all of the reasons 
that are grounded, that are grounding the various norms here, both moral and conventional, one could take to be a function of authority after all. So here's what I mean by that. Um, in the original task, they ask, oh, one boy hits the other. Is that okay? No, that's not okay. What if the teacher says it's okay? And they say, no, that's still not okay. Well, that's the wrong authority in this question. The right authority is the boy that's being hit. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you kind of want to, you might be curious. I want to know what it's like to be hit. Here, hit me on the shoulder. And so in that case, if one of the, the boy who's being hit said, yeah, it's okay for you to hit me. And there's no other power dynamic here, you know, at work, then it is okay. So what you have to do is you just have to figure out the right authority when it comes to moral purposes. Now, this gravitates us towards a kind of Stephen Darwall view of what counts as the relevant kinds of moral reasons and their second personal reasons. And I think this is a huge part of how we, what, how we should treat each other is that these are the, the reasons that matter are the reasons that stem from other people's authority. So that if you say, don't do that to me, that in and of itself constitutes a powerful reason for me not to do that for you. Now, how do I know which reasons are authoritative for me? Oh, this is going to be the the answer that everybody sees coming at this point, empathy. So the idea is that I can take up your perspective and I can see what it is that you'd want me to do or not want me to do. And I think that these kinds of reasons are what ground a central part of morality. And if you're impaired for, empa- for empathy, then you can't, you have very, you have difficulty seeing what those reasons are. So I think what the psychopaths can't see in the moral conventional task, and there is something that they're not seeing, it's true, are certain kinds of authority-based reasons where the authority are, are fellows mm. in the moral community. So that's why I think they're not accountable. That's the full story for why I think they're not accountable. They can't take up our perspectives properly. They can't regard us in the way that I think we demand of one another in interpersonal moral accountability. But they can recognize certain kinds of conventional rules like those that are instantiated in law. Right. And they Mm -hmm. are able to guide their behavior relative to certain kinds of explicit rules. And so when you read on in the Herbie Cleckley book, you see others who say, yeah, but this is the rule here. Yeah, okay, I know that's the rule. And they're capable of altering their behavior to conform to it. It's a lot of time they don't want to. Yeah. So if we allow that there can then be a distinction between the moral community, where what we're demanding is a certain kind of empathy and adherent recognition and response to certain second personal reasons. Mm-hmm. Those aren't what the law cares about. The law does not care why it is you're doing what you're doing. The law only cares that you conform to its rules. That is to say that you intend to do the right thing. So I think the difference, the fundamental difference between morality and the law is that morality demands a certain kind of motivation from people. The law doesn't care what the motivation is. All the law cares is that you executed a certain intention. Yeah. So... For example, just quickly, if I say um, uh, my wife finds out that I've been faithful to her, but only because I'm terrified of what she'll do to me if I cheat on her, <laughs> that properly grounds anger on her part. 
Mm-hmm. Right? And the anger is in the motivation. It's in my regard, certain kind of regard that I have for her. The law does not care why I have refrained from stealing. All that it cares is that I have done so. Right. So to the extent that psychopaths can conform their actions to the demands of the law, then they can be criminally accountable, even though they're not morally accountable. Hmm. That's very interesting. Yeah. Well, thanks. This has been awesome, Dave. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, where can listeners go to follow your work? Um, so I have a, um, a website, <laughs> personal website that includes, uh, I try to upload all my papers and, but also interviews and, um, and I'm trying to become <laughs> a presence on Twitter. I feel like I'm way too old for this, but uh, sorry, I'm, I'm way too old for this. But um, I've got a book coming out on humor and morality, as you mentioned, called Wisecracks. And it's going to be more of a trade publication. And the uh, the marketers, the publishers are <laughs> urging me to get out more publicly. So I'll be doing more of that on Twitter at David W. Shoemaker. Um, and that's probably it. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll try for some other stuff but i haven't gotten there yet no, yeah and we'll link to your website in the show notes too yeah totally great yeah thanks again dave yep thank you in our next episode we'll talk about addiction in the law and our guest will be stephen morse ferdinand wakeman hubble professor of law at the university of pennsylvania 